Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Today's um, Bible reading is from Judges chapter 14, verse 1 to 20. When I finish, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our people? Must you go to the circumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's right. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there something held a feast, as was customary for a young man. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen, of 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we'll burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw himself on him, sobbing, you hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle and you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down thirty of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave the clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he explained, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Auntie Kim. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, 
till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so welcome. Um, if you're just joining us, we're happy to have you here. We've been in the middle of a series which we started last month um, called Idols and the City. And basically what we've been doing is look at certain um, idols, certain things that our city takes, the city of Lagos and really just the culture of the time we live in now, that the city takes and um, worships, that's what we called it. And really the, the, the aim of the series is to show us that we commit idolatry when we take good things and make them God things when we take the good gifts that God has given us and make them ultimate things. And so the first five sermons um, looked at the idol of money um, over the last month. And we saw that, um, if, you want, if you want a summary, this is a way to look at it, that the first three sermons looked at our motivations for making money. And then the last two sermons looked at our motivations in spending money. And so we really discovered that the the most important thing about um, what we say on Sunday, or, or rather scratch that, that our statement of accounts, our, our monthly statement of accounts, reveals who we actually worship, right? The, the, the inflows and the outflows into our account reveal who actually is our God. And so we finished um, that last week, and I really encourage you, if, you've not, if you're just joining us, you've not listened to anyone or you missed one, so please consider going on SoundCloud or iTunes to the Gospel in Lagos and downloading the sermons. And, and all of that to say that you should listen to the sermon and that I also wish that I preached in that sermon series. Because we are starting a, a new section of the sermon series that will be looking at sex throughout this month. And next month we'll be looking at power. And if you are anything like me, a very conservative person, any talk about sex makes you a little bit nervous or cringy. But the Bible will not spell us. God will not allow us to remain uncomfortable, um, to remain comfortable rather. God wants to actually prod us in the ways that which we've idolized sex and the ways we've looked at sex in ungodly ways. And so, like Dami reminded us about two or so weeks ago when he preached, that we live in a very sexualized age. We live in an age where, like he told us, people want to advertise tissue paper and they put a lady there. And he, he told us about a billboard where it was for house paint. And there's a lady there who is covered with the paint. And the idea is if you paint your house this color, you get the lady. It's kind of like buy one, get one free. You know, if you, if you do this one, you get this one as well. And so in our culture today, there are like two kinds of sexual orientations um, or sexual dispositions. And so there are the sexual prudes and the sexual revolutionaries. Now, the sexual prudes are people like myself, conservative. I like to think I'm conservative. Forget the sneakers on native today. But I like to think I'm conservative. Um, and so people like us, you usually, you know, grew up in moral homes or Christian homes where all your life, don't sleep with a woman, don't sleep with a woman, not together, don't sleep with a woman. And we just really prioritize that thing. And so I remember a lady who um, were in NYC together. She was a Christian, or she said she was a Christian. <laughs> and we're talking one day about um, the return of Jesus. And she was like, ah, Jesus should not come now. And we're like, eh, why? And this is exactly what she said. She said, my waist has not served purpose. Now, if you are, if you are maybe a very conservative person, what she was really trying to say is that I've not had sex. How can I have been a virgin all these years? Before I get my Jesus will now come. No, I must have sex before Jesus comes. And the idea really is that because I keep myself, you know, I obey God's laws, God owes me a good life of sexual bliss forever and forever. And then there's the other side, the sexual revolutionaries. People who like to explore, you know, the mantra is freedom, want to explore, want to you know, reach the best possible delight. And so you find them people like a man called Marvin Gaye who sang a song in 1982 called Sexual Healing. And he says in that song that, baby, I'm hot just like an oven. I need some loving. Baby, I can't hold it much longer. It's getting stronger and stronger. 
And when I get that feeling, I want sexual healing. Sexual healing, oh baby, it makes me feel so fine. It helps to relieve my mind. Sexual healing, baby, is good for me. Sexual healing is something that's good for me. I know, I just said all the entire thing. Yeah, so conservative, as you can tell. But that's, there are people like that. And then there's also people on that side, people like a basketball player named um, Will Chamberlain. Will Chamberlain is one of the most rated basketball players ever in the history of basketball. He was seven foot one inch. He was, he's the only person ever to have scored 100 points in a basketball game. The guy is a legend. He's been inducted into the NBA Basketball Hall of Fame. He's really good. And so he, in 1991, he released a book called The View from Above. And in that book, he writes about life, about his view on politics, and also about his view on love and sex. And in that book, he reveals that by his calculations up to that point, he had slept with 20,000 women. Just, <laughs> just think about it for a second. 20,000 women. Calculations is that's like 1.4 per day. I don't know. But he made a point, and to his credit, he made a point of never sleeping with a married person. He didn't want to destroy people's homes. He just wanted to, you know, single ladies that are ready to mingle get. Um, and so he said, in the book, he said, I was just doing what was natural, chasing good-looking ladies wherever they were and whoever they were. You see, the problem isn't just with the sexual revolutionaries. The problem is also with the sexual prudes. Because both of them are motivated by a view about sex that is lustful. Both of them are motivated by a view that says, I deserve to get a life of sexual bliss. And you see, the Bible shows us that there is a path of lust. There is a trajectory that lust follows. And so this morning we'll be looking, we'll call the sermon title, um, The Trajectory of Lust. And we'll be looking at this story of Samson under three headings. The attraction of lust, the deception of lust, and the defeat of lust. The attraction of lust, deception of lust, and the defeat of lust. Now, the first one, the attraction of lust. Now, to understand the story of Samson well, you need to be familiar with the book of Judges. And so the book of Judges is the period after the death of Joshua, who was um, the leader of God's people. So Moses had led the children of Israel out of um, Egypt, and then Joshua had taken over from Moses. And of course, like any human leader, he led well, but eventually died. And so before he died, he, made, he charged the people of God to say, go into the promised land, take over all the places and territories that God has promised us. And he exhorted them and um, he died. It was a great story, a great field, a faith-filled story. But no sooner had Joshua died than the people of Israel you know, started doing their own things. And so they go down their own path and they disobey God. And so God's instruction was that you guys should go into the, into the promised land, the 12 tribes of Israel, go into the promised land and take over the territories, send out the countries in those places. But what did the people do? Some of them, like the tribe of Benjamin, as you see in chapter 1 and 2, some of them decided they didn't really like war. This God, we don't like, why is he making us fight? So what they did was, they decided to live in peace side by side with the enemies. Of course, when you make peace with the devil, he actually ends up taking over. And that was exactly what happened. And so you find again, there's a cycle in the book of Judges where the people disobey God and God gives them over to be oppressed um, and held in captivity by their enemies. And so there's a pattern that goes all over and over again. The people abandon God. They follow false gods. The people are oppressed by their enemies. They cry out to God for deliverance. God raises a judge who delivers them. The judge rules them and there is peace. The judge dies and then they go right back into captivity. And so if you want a central verse for the book of Judges, it's in Judges 21-25 and it's repeated throughout the book. It goes something like this. That in those days there, was, there were no kings and everyone did what was right. And so that's, that's really the story of Judges. 
And so the pattern repeats itself over and over again. And people will cry out to God and God will raise a deliverer for, for them. And so you see that in chapters 3 to 16. You see God using people like Othniel, like Ehud, like Shamgar. There's even a Yoruba man there named Tola, like Gideon, like Jephthah, and you know, all sorts of characters. But Samson was the last of them. And by the way, we did a series last year called We Need a King, and it was through the book of Judges. And I commend that to you to listen as well. And so in chapter 13, we're introduced to Samson. And what we see about Samson is that an angel appears to his mom first, and then later to his dad, but to his parents, and instructs them that Samson is going to be born as a deliverer for God's people. He was to be born as a Nazarite. And what it meant in the Old Testament to be a Nazarite is to be specially dedicated or consecrated to God. So you see, number six, that God gives three things that a Nazarite is meant to do. One, the Nazarite was not meant to touch a dead thing. Two, the Nazarite was not meant to take alcohol. And three, the Nazarite was not supposed to cut their hair. And so that was, those things were the markers of what it meant to be devoted to God in a special way or consecrated to God. And then now we enter chapter 14. So by this time, of course, Samson is, is an adult, he's mature, and he wants a wife, he wants to get married, he wants to settle down. And so he sees a woman who he wants as wife, and he approaches his parents. Now, in that culture, in, in, in those times, in Middle Eastern times, um, Middle Eastern culture rather, and even in some parts of Middle East up to today, it's the parents that pick the spouse. And so forget all these are Lagos, 21st century, westernized, no, daddy, I'm picking my husband and all of those kinds of things. People, the families pick the spouses for the person. And they didn't feel like their human rights were being violated. They didn't feel like they didn't have a say. They felt like it was legitimate, right? If, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you may remember the story of Isaac, that Abraham was the one who actually picked a wife for Isaac. Isaac never saw Rebecca. He never heard the name. He never knew anything about her. It was the day that she landed in his presence as his wife, that was the day he got to know her. And so this was a tradition. So you can imagine the paradox in verse 2 of chapter 14, where Samson says, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timna. Now get her for me as my wife. Samson is not saying, Daddy, help us plan our wedding. I, I, don't, I don't have enough money. Give me some money. Rather, the writer wants us to see that Samson is doing something here that is paradoxical to the culture. So on the one hand, Samson is saying, I respect you. I, I want to obey the pattern. I want to do what we are meant to do. But unless you do what I want you to do, I'm not going to do what you are supposed to do. You get that kind of thing. And so Samson is actually using his parents as pawns in his own game. He wants to play them so that they can do what he wants them to do. But then you see his parents who are godly people actually remind Samson like, no, Samson, how can you say this? Because God tells us that we shouldn't marry anybody who is not in the tribe of Israel, who is not part of the people of God, people of uh, God in Israel. You see, in the Old Testament, particularly in um, Deuteronomy 7 and Exodus 34, when God gives the covenant again to the people of Israel, he tells them, don't take any spouse or any person, don't marry any person that is not part of the people of God. But Samson is reminded of that, and yet he says again in verse 3, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. You see, Samson was willing to disobey God to get this lady. And you might think, ah, this guy is really in love, man. This guy really loves this babe. She must have made it fantastic impression on him. But we know from the text that Samson actually did not know anything about the girl because it was until verse 7, as we'll see, that Samson actually first talked to her. So something was driven, was motivated by something else except love. And we see this pattern repeated in the life of Samson. In chapter 16, he goes to sleep with a prostitute. In, in, in Gaza. In the later part of chapter 16, he goes in and falls in love with a woman named Delilah. You see, this passage tells us something important about Samson's attraction to women. Samson, one, he was willing to use people to get what he wanted, and two, he was willing to disobey God to get what he wanted. 
See, Samson did not love this woman. He was motivated by lust for the woman. He felt strongly, get her for me. He noticed rightly because the text tells us that she was a young Philistine woman. And if you know anything about the Philistines, they're very beautiful. And so he, 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 he did notice correctly. But he, he thought that because he noticed rightly and he felt strongly, he could do whatever he wanted. And isn't that what we do sometimes in our day and age today? We feel that because we feel very strongly, there's a lot of sexual stimulation and a lot of sexual awareness. And we notice rightly, ah, this person is sexy, this person is good, and we are good to go, that we've made the match. But you see, this is the heart of idolatry. It is that we set ourselves up as God and depose the true God. Samson uses his sexuality not as something to serve God, but as something to be served. And so he does that again and again, like we said, throughout his story. You see, we live in a day and an age where there's a law of sex. Sex is everywhere. So from our advertisements to our movies to the comedians we hear to the jokes we say to the sexting on our phones, sex is everywhere. And the mantra is, if you've got it, flaunt it. If you want it, say it. Except that now we are sophisticated. We are no longer like Samson. No need, no need to be shouting every time. Get me this, get me that. No. We have now modified our own. So what do we do? Because of the internet, we can now simply just click um, on, a, on a website and we have everything right in front of us. Pornography at our beck and call. We have something. Before it used to be prostitutes and people who stood by the roadside. Now we have something called the escort, where you just make a phone call and somebody's right in front of your doorstep, ready to service you. That is the day and age in which we live. You see, the problem we lost is that it makes us functional atheists. We say that we believe in God, but we don't really believe in God. We act as if God's commands and God's instructions and God's instructions don't really matter. After all, I feel it. I can see it. You see, loss is idolatry because it sets us up as God instead of the true God. And so, go back to the... To, to the um, to the sexual prudes and the sexual revolutionaries that we talked about. The sexual prudes, in most cases, are really motivated by a desire for success. It's attractive. And I did grow up in, in this kind of place where, again, the godly people, marvelous people, but you, every once in a while you'd go for a marriage event, a marriage seminar, and somebody would come out and say, ah, we never had sex um, before we got married, and now it's fantastic. And you hear that and you be like, wow, I want that. I want to be the person who is always in front, who people are looking up to as the successful married person, the person who is having a lifetime of fantastic sex in my marriage. Or sometimes it's the idol of self-righteousness that we want to be able to say to people that, I did it, better do it. I did it. If you don't do it, you don't have self-control. And that's how the sexual approach thing. The sexual revolutionaries, on the other hand, sometimes it's because of approval. And if, if you're a teenager here, um, be careful. This is why many people, many, many teenagers and many young people in uni, they get into premarital sex and they engage in lustful things because everybody's doing it. Why should I be the one who is, who is out? Why should I be the one who is different? We want the approval of the people around us. Sometimes for the guys... Is because we really want to feel in control. We want, to be, want someone to be at our beck and call. We want somebody who is always there for us and snap your finger. The person is there to service you. Sometimes it's also because we idolize comfort. And so I know a good number of people who are struggling with addictions to pornography and addictions to, to premarital sex. And the thing is, I've had a very strong, long day. I've been stressed at work. I need to relax. And so because you want to relax, because you love the pleasure that this thing gives you, you switch on your TV, you switch on um, your internet site, and you're looking at pornography. The Bible does tell us that there is such a thing 
as the pleasures of sin. It is attractive, but brothers and sisters, it is fleeting. It never stays. And that's what we find out with the, with, with the story of Samson. Do you remember that song that I said? The Marvin Gaye song. He says, I have a feeling. I'm hot. I can't hold it any longer. It relieves my mind. You see, the problem is that this sexual loss puts us at the center. If you look at the lyrics of that song, it is only once that he talks about us. All through the song, he's talking about I, me, my. Sexual loss puts us at the center of our sexual desires. And he says, because I feel this way, I deserve it. I'm the only one that truly matters. Whereas the love of God actually says quite the opposite. And so that is what is at work in, in Samson. But then we see again that lust is deceptive. And so we'll go to our second point, the deception of lust. Now the narrator shows us that somehow, by the time we get to verse 5, somehow Samson has bullied his parents into doing what he wants. He's probably used his strength or whatever he, he, he can. And so the family, like, kind of like our Nigerian families now, said, okay, well, you want to get married? And they go for the introduction. And they are traveling on the road. But apparently, the road they must have been traveling on must have been like a Nigerian road because there was no toilet. Um, I don't know if you've ever driven a Nigerian road. And God help you, you, you took too much water before you left the house. And you're looking for, ah, where can I, where can I do this? Thing? And then tell the driver, pack, pack, pack by this bush. And then you run inside. That must have been what Samson did because the text tells us that they were going on the road and Samson somehow left his parents and he went somewhere. So maybe he went to use the toilet. And as he got there, a lion roars. A lion jumps out at him, about to kill him. And Samson kills the, the lion. But the text tells us that he killed it very easily because we see in verse 6 that it says, The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Now, apparently, the test of strength was how easily you could tear a young goat. I don't know any guy here who can tear a young goat. I don't know anyone. So, obviously, you are not strong. And so, the text says that Samson tore the lion like a young goat. And, and the text is trying to help us see how strong this guy was. But then it goes again to say that he didn't tell his parents. He didn't tell his parents what he had done. And so for Samson, this was another day. This was just a regular day, right? It's like how when we're in our rooms or in our homes, we see, we see a mosquito that is flying and you just kill it or you kill an ant in the kitchen. And then nobody, nobody, your spouse comes back at the end of the day and says, ah, how, baby, how was your day? I hope you didn't have a stressful day. Just me, just me, what happened? Nobody says, I killed a mosquito today, oh. Right, because that is not the stuff of news. That is, there's nothing special about that. And for Samson, it was the same thing. Like this was just another day in the life of a judge. Just yesterday, at six o'clock, I killed the lion, going down there to kill something else. It was just a regular day. And so Samson was deceived. Samson felt that because things were going on normally, that the path he was on was correct. He thought that the display of divine strength was also a display of divine validation. How wrong could he be? You see, but obviously the introduction went well because the text tells us that the family returns and then they go back for the wedding. Um, and then, again, they are traveling along the road and something does the regular again. He wants to go and use the toilet or do something in the bush. He leaves his parents and then he goes again into the bush. But then the text tells us that Samson saw honey and a swarm of bees in the carcass of the lion. And he takes some of the honey and he eats. Again, I don't know. He must have really loved honey because I don't know who is hungry that eats honey. But here's the point, and it's easy for us to miss. It was the carcass of the lion. The lion was dead. Remember again, I said that one of the instructions of God in number six for Nazarites was that they should not have any contact with anything that is dead. And Samson goes, touches this dead lion, and he takes the honey, scoops it up, and eats. Life is just normal. Life continues. 
In fact, this pattern again reveals itself in chapter 15. We see that he's somewhere, he's surrounded by a thousand Philistines, the army of a thousand Philistines. And he picks again the fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he kills all of them with it. Of course, to have the jawbone of a donkey, the donkey had to have died. And he does it again. And so we see that God's strength, God's power is still at work in the life of this guy. And he thinks everything is normal. Everything is okay. Life is going on, progressing. And it's the same thing for us. That lust deceives us. It entices us. It makes us think that everything is normal because things around us are continuing the way that they should. You see, Samson is deceived into thinking that he can break God's law without God's punishment. And so he goes again. He arrives at the party. Wedding is on. What does Samson do? Samson throws a feast. It tells us, the text tells us that like people normally do, Samson also copies the trend. You know, it's, it's like when we are doing wedding these days and you're asking, ah, what did they do? What did Banky W and are they so I do at their wedding? Ah, I want that same thing. So it's, it's kind of like that. And so Samson got there, was like, like everybody does, he threw a feast. He threw a same feast. Now, in, in the English language, it's easy for us to miss what the text is saying. Because that word there that is translated feast is a Hebrew word that means mishte. And it means a wedding party where alcohol is served. Now, there's a difference, I'm sure we all know, between wedding reception and after party. You know, you're like me, ah, your parents are around. Very conservative. So you do the reception, you're wearing your dress, nice. God help you, even got married in some of the older churches where, as in, the, the wedding gown was get here, you can't show anything. So you wear it, you're wearing jacket on top, you're covering yourself and everything. And then the reception is over. Six of you are dancing, you maintain gap between yourself and your spouse. But then it's getting to five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ah, everybody has gone. It's time for the after party. And so you gather with your friends, and this is where everybody goes wild. Yeah, dancing, drinking, enjoying, just having a swell time. Samson did not throw a wedding reception. Samson threw an after party. He had a lavish time with his friends, drinking alcohol and, and having fun. And again, it's easy for us to miss, except that number six tells us that the Nazarite was not supposed to consume alcohol. And Samson did the very same thing that God had told him not to do. Life was normal. Everything was fine. But then in the party, Samson threw a riddle. You see, back in the day, when someone throws a riddle, it's not like the way we do riddles when we're growing up. That we do riddles and jokes. You say, I am something. I fly in the night. But I don't, you know that kind of thing. What am I? Say, so, oh, yeah, I fly. Oh. <laughs> that was not what Samson did. In, in, the, in the ancient culture, to throw a riddle or to say a riddle and get the answer, you had to be somebody who was extremely wise. You either knew the thing or you were extremely wise. And so you can understand why the Philistines were upset when Samson said, if you don't, if you don't get the answer, you are going to give me 30 new pieces of clothes. And what did they say? When, when they came to Samson's wife, they said, you guys want to make us poor. You want to collect all our money. That was what Samson was doing because he, he felt like nobody can know the answer to these things. Nobody can get the answer. And so the Philistines come to the wife in verse 15 and threaten her on the pains of death that if you don't give us the answer to this thing, we're going to kill you and kill your entire household. <laughs> and what did they say to her? They say, coax your husband in verse 15 into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Now, coax your husband to give us is the same expression in the original language with when the Philistines come to Delilah and say, find the answer of his strength. In other words, use your sexuality as something to entice Samson to get his answer. So all along, we thought that it was just Samson who was motivated by his loss. But then now we see 
that Samson's wife is also equally motivated by lust. She comes to sex because of something else. She actually comes to sex because of familial approval and familial survival. She doesn't want her, 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 her family to die. She doesn't want to lose anyone. And so what does she do? She uses sex as a weapon to get Samson's secrets. And of course, after she manipulates Samson, he reveals the answer. And the Philistines tell him the answer on the seventh day of the wedding feast. Rather than sober up, brothers and sisters, what did Samson do? Samson should have thought, like, oh my God, this path, this, this thing I'm doing, this thing is dangerous. I'm on a dangerous path. My life is about to end. I just revealed, somebody just manipulated me now to get the answer. What does he do? Samson gets angry instead. And the text tells us that, the spirit, um, that he goes into um, the city and he kills 30 people and collects their clothes and gives it back to the family. He was using his God-given gifts for his own purposes. And this is a dangerous thing that we see in, 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 the, in the life of Samson because it repeats itself in, chapters, in chapter 15 again. He comes into the city. He's about to be captured. He's sleeping with a prostitute. He's about to be captured. His Philistines are waiting for him till, till the next morning. And he says that the Spirit of God came upon him again and he goes out of the city. He pulls up the gates. Gates of the city then were not like your house gates or your estate gates. They were actually heavy stuff. And this guy was able to pull it out and carry it on his shoulders for a long mile and then dump it. We're shown again that in that same chapter 15, he goes down there, there he's surrounded by an army of Philistines, about 1,000 Philistines. And the Spirit of God comes upon him again and he's able to kill all of those 1,000 Philistines. He's able to destroy the fields of the, of the Philistines. Everything is progressing as normal. Life is good for Samson. The, the, the power that he has has not diminished in any regard. And yet that is the danger of loss. That he can continue on a path that is very opposite to God. And life is going on normally. You see, there's a tendency for us to think that, ah, maybe, maybe, maybe Samson wasn't that bad. After all, God was walking through him. After all, everything was going on normally. In fact, we see many times between chapter 14 and 16 that the text tells us that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. The Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God rushed upon him. God was using Samson. And in fact, we are told in verse 4 that his parents did not know this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. And we're wondering, maybe it's not that bad. But brothers and sisters, if we do not learn anything from, Philistine, um, from Samson, sorry, we must learn that it is possible to be used by God and yet be disapproved of by God. We see all over scripture that God raises people up who are very opposite to his purposes and his plans. And yet he's using them. Why? Because God's purposes cannot be thwarted. God's purposes cannot be destroyed. And God was saying effectively, his plan for the redemption of the people of Israel was still on course. But something, Samson was perverting it, was using it for his own selfish ends and interests. And that is how loss deceives, brothers and sisters. It deceives us into thinking that there is no consequence for sin. It deceives us into thinking that because we are walking in power and walking in miracles and living a life of favor and we know who we are, that it is the evidence of God's approval upon our lives. It deceives us into thinking that we do not need any godly community and any help around us. Samson was the only judge of the people of Israel who never called a military council or a military tribunal to confer what strategy should he take. Every time he did stuff, he did it alone. He was... He was your lone ranger. He was the guy who could take them all out. He didn't need anybody's help. And, it, and that's how loss deceives us. It deceives us that we don't need anybody. We don't need anything. We don't need anyone. We are self-sufficient. And as we will see in chapter 16 again, his loss deceived him into thinking that he was invincible. It kept on deceiving him into thinking that he, no one could take him out. Nothing could happen to him. I'm sure you've heard Every now and then we hear the stories of pastors or people in ministry who fall after a while. 
And what we hear is that this thing has been going on in the closet for a while. In fact, I heard the story of someone who he would sin sexually and he would say, ah, I feel so bad. Well, let me just preach this Sunday sermon. After Sunday sermon, I'll confess on Monday and I'll, re- and I'll resign. But then he will preach Sunday sermon and the sermon will be like powerful. Like, nah. No, something isn't wrong. Everything is fine. And then he will do it again. And the sermon was powerful and then the person eventually fell. That is how loss deceives us. It takes us down a path of self-destruction. It allows us to press the button of self-destruction upon God's purposes for our lives and for ourselves. You see, loss deceives us and tells us the lie that we can find fulfillment in sex. And so you hear people very often say things like, we're trying to find out if we are compatible. We're trying to find out if, you know, we really get along together. You get, we don't, don't want to get into the future and find that we really can't be together. So that's why we're having sex now. Or you hear loss deceiving us into the fact that we don't need people in our lives. We don't need godly community that calls us to account. And so a lot of people who are struggling with pornography and addiction, they don't really want to come out. Because the, the comfort of secrecy is better than the discomfort that the light of God brings into our hearts. Or sometimes it lies to us, like, like Samson's fiancé, that we can get familial approval, we can get familial um, validation. People around us can look at us and say, oh, yeah, this person did what was right. You see, the basketball player I told us about, Will Chamberlain, who had slept with 20,000 men. In an article in 1999 in a magazine called The Atlantic, it records that in a 1999 interview, shortly before he died, Wilt made the following revealing statement. He said, Having a thousand different ladies is pretty cool. I've learned that in my life. I've also found out that having one woman a thousand different times is more satisfying. You see, all his life, Will Chamberlain was looking for satisfaction and was looking for it at the altar of sex. And that's how many of us are today. We're looking for satisfaction, for validation, from things that we think sex can give us. And even some of us who are married, we no longer see sex as an altar with which to lovingly sacrifice for our spouse. Rather, we see it as an altar at which to make demands upon our spouse. You see, if you've ever traveled a lonely country road or you've traveled along the express, you would have recognized the tragedy of a mirage. You see it in the distance. You think it's a pool of water. And you're driving there with all your strength and with all your energy. Thirsty, man, I want to take water. But then you get there. And you discover that there really wasn't anything there. That's how lust deceives us. That's how lust controls us and manipulates us. You see, lust wants to be served, but love wants to serve. Lust wants to get, but love wants to give. Lust objectifies, but love personifies. Lust is contractual, but love is covenantal. Lust is fleeting, but love is long-suffering. Lust is self-promoting. Lust is self-effacing. Lust is deceptive because it always over-promises, but under-delivers. It will tell us things that it will do for us, but it never gives us any of those things. And so we see that in the life of Samson. We see that lust has an attraction, but it's an attraction that passes with time. We see that it is deceptive, that it promises us things, but it never actually gives us. And now we see finally, point three, that lust defeats. So we look at the third point, the defeat of lust. You see, Samson continues to be guided by his lust. And so we see in chapter 15, like we read in the text today, that the story actually ends badly for Samson. But we see in chapter 15 that he goes back to this same woman. He hasn't learned anything from, from the encounter. He goes back to the same woman 
and he tries, you know, to have her back. But then he discovered that she had been married off to, his, to a friend, to his best man. And so what does he do? He's having to, like they were saying in Yoruba, you know, accept that God has controlled his destiny. What does he do? He actually destroys the fields of the Philistines. He uses his power again, the power that God has given to him, for his own, for his own selfish purposes. He doesn't learn anything without encounter. He goes again in chapter 16. He goes to sleep with a prostitute. And then he's still able to do this miraculous thing of lifting the gates. And then lastly, we see him going to Delilah. He's falling in love with Delilah. And now Delilah has been tasked by the, by the Philistines to give the secret of his power. You see, we see in verses 6 to 14, it's a dangerous thing that Samson plays games with his destiny. It's as though he's playing katakata with his destiny. He's running around with Delilah and the Philistines. Three different times, Delilah asked him for the secret of his power. And I kid you not, three different times, Samson plays the game along with her. You'll have thought that, oh, maybe he thought it was a joke. So the first time, he actually kind of like deceived her. But she actually carried out what he said. And the guy should have been alarmed. This thing is serious. But she does it the second time, and he follows. And she does it the third time, and he follows. And we see that this deception of loss has put him in a corner. You see, eventually, we see that Samson yields to the lady because it was more important for Samson to be with Delilah than to maintain his devotion to God. He didn't say so. And many times we don't say so. But Samson acted it. And this is what happens, friends, when we bow down at the altar of sex and lust. We are saying actually that it is more important to have you than to have God. It is what we do when we rationalize and sleep with us with our boyfriend or girlfriend or with our fiancés, even though we haven't been married. It is what we do when we look at pornography, when we know that we shouldn't. It is what we do, guys, when we forcefully um, marry people, when we have sex with our spouses um, against their desires and against their will, because it's more important for us to be satisfied than it is for them to be satisfied. It is what happens, guys, in our minds when we look at the women in our life and, and the ladies that God has placed around us and we see, it, see them as a collection of moving body parts that exist for our own pleasure and fantasies rather than as image bearers of God. It is what we do, ladies and sisters, when we use the sexuality that God has given us as something to manipulate the men around us. Lust deceives and loss is coming for us. It is as though it sets a bull's eye on us. It is either we defeat it or it defeats us. It must be killed. It cannot be tamed. And so we see that eventually Samson is defeated by lust. In verses 15 to 21 of chapter 16, because there really is no telling Samson's, the story of Samson's life without actually looking at chapter 16, we see that Samson eventually yields to Delilah and tells her the secret of his strength. We know it is most likely a sexual encounter because we are told that she puts his head to sleep on her lap. Something has happened. And the stupid guy gives himself into her, tells the secret, and he sleeps and she shaves off his hair. And the Philistines come and subdue him and defeat him. We now see that Samson, who was meant to be a deliverer of God's people, becomes a captive. Samson, who was meant to be a liberator, now becomes a laborer in the camp of the Philistines. I must think how devastating this can be, or this was for the people of Israel. Imagine them sitting in front of their, of their, of their TVs, if they had TVs back in the day, and watching channels news and 10. And what did they see? They see Samson with his eyes gouged out and his hands tied behind his back being paraded as a sport or as um, an instrument of pleasure for the Philistines. It's kind of like how we would feel now, now if, if our spouse died or if the breadwinner in our family died or if something happened drastically that changes the course of our lives and leads us back into poverty or something. That is the way the children of Israel would have felt. It felt like a stop in the redemptive purposes of God. 
But you see, God was not done with Samson. And if you're here and you're a sexual offender, sexual idolater, you're a sexual prude, a sexual revolutionary, God is not done with you yet. We know this because we are told in verse 22 that the hair on Samson's head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And you're looking like, the hair goes after it has been shaved. But this is the point. Every time Samson sinned against God, he was saying effectively, like, God, your plan does not matter. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters the most is my life. And so he had taken alcohol when he wasn't supposed to take alcohol. He had taught dead things when he wasn't supposed to taught dead things. And now he had had his hair cut off when he wasn't supposed to cut it off. God could actually have said, I give up. This guy is done. I'm done with this guy. And God could have made a point and said, your hair is not growing back. You are going to stay bald for the rest of your life as proof of your foolishness. But no, God doesn't do that. God allows his hair to grow back again. And we see for the first time, it is as though in allowing his hair to grow back, God is saying, I can redeem this. I can fix this. And for the first time, we see a change in Samson. In verses 23 to 30 of chapter 16, we see that Samson is brought into the temple of Dagon, the god of the Philistines, to be mocked at and to be laughed at and to be used as an instrument of entertainment and pleasure. For the first time in the story, we see that Samson is depending upon someone else. Samson actually turns to a servant who is there beside him and says, please help me. Put my hands on the pillars in the temple. For the first time, Samson is leaning on someone. For the first time, Samson prays to God, truly. And so in chapter 15, we saw Samson praying to God. After he had defeated the, the Philistines with the jawbone of, an, of a donkey, what does he do? He, he shouts to God, basically, and says, God, give me water. Are you going to let me die? That was, that was how he used to pray before. But now... He comes before God and he actually prays to God, depending upon God. And so we hear him in verse 28. What does he say? Then Samson prayed to God, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. What is Samson asking God for? He's asking God for mercy. Please Lord, remember me. And he's asking God for grace. Please God, strengthen me. He realizes for the first time, for the very first time, that God is both the giver of his gifts and the reason for his gifts. You see, and God in his grace and mercy grants Samson's request. We're told in verse 30 that Samson kills the 3,000 people in the building. But it's an anticlimax. Because not only does he kill them, he dies along with them. And he fails to actually lead the people of God out of the captivity they were in. Samson was the first judge. All the other judges would actually lead people out and there would be a period of reprieve and relief. But Samson was the first person who, despite all he did, killing people, doing all these things, we are not told that the people of Israel actually came out of that bondage. They were there. So the story ends. And the great deliverance that God has for his people is not worked out. And we think that God has given up both on Samson and the people of Israel. But you see, God is not done yet. God is not done yet because several years later, God sends another angel to another woman in a small village called Nazareth. Like Samson's mother, she would give birth to a son who would be the deliverer of God's people. Like Samson, this child will be totally consecrated to God all his life. Like Samson, this child will have incalculable privileges and strengths. But that is where the similarities end. Because unlike Samson, this child would not use his strength and his privileges for himself. Unlike Samson, he would not break his consecration to God. Unlike Samson, he would not be driven by loss, but driven by love. Unlike Samson, he would not use the people in his life. Unlike Samson, he would not be a sexual failure, but a total savior. Unlike Samson, he would not take the lives of his enemies, but he would give his life for his enemies. Unlike Samson, he would not merely attempt deliverance for God's people, but actually accomplish deliverance for God's people. Unlike Samson, and unlike you and I, 
he would not be a sexual prude or a sexual revolutionary, but he would be sexually faithful to God. And the name of this true deliverer is Jesus. You see, on the cross of Christ, God grants pardon to sexual sinners like you and I, sexual prudes and sexual revolutionaries. He forgives us and he grants us a new lease of life in Christ. And if you are not a Christian this morning, you are not following Christ, I would like to invite you that this is the freedom, this is the offer that Christ offers us in the gospel. And if you are a Christian here this morning, God is not done with you yet. How do we know? I know because in Hebrews 11, we are told that this same Samson, where the writer of Hebrews lists out the, the, the hall of faith, or people of faith, this same Samson is listed there. And the text tells us immediately after, Hebrews 11:34 that these people, by faith, stopped the mouth of lions. By faith, they were made strong out of weakness. God made Samson strong out of his weakness. Samson did not become truly strong until he began to depend on God and not on his own weakness. You see, brothers and sisters, God's grace grants us pardon. But you see, God's grace does not just grant us pardon. It grants us power. It grants us the power to say no to sexual sin. It grants us the power to defeat sin. It is either we defeat this sin or it defeats us. And so how do we make war practically against the sin of loss? I've heard many times, and I feel many times that way myself, like this thing is around. I can't do anything. I'm going to be consumed by it. And I remember, true story, myself, when myself and my wife were dating, I remember there was a period I genuinely felt like I was going to sleep with this girl. I felt like I just needed time, like I was going to sleep with her. And I remember one day I was in the office, and the pressure was so strong and I ran to the toilet and I prayed like God help me if you don't help me I will, I, I will, I will sin against you and I picked up my phone and called a friend and said this is how I'm feeling right now I need you to pray for me and I need you to hold me accountable you see and so the first thing that I'll commend to us many times for those of us who are dating is get someone to speak with get someone to talk to you see, many times we like to date in secret. I don't want anybody in my business. I don't want anybody, you know, interfering with me. But there is nothing like, like, like dating, like a true godly dating relationship that does not call for the supervision of godly people in your community, that does not call for accountability with godly people in your community. If you are struggling with the sin of lust and pornography, Confess to someone. Speak to someone. I'm struggling with this thing. I'm battling this thing. It's going to eat me up. You see, the reason why many people continue to fall again and again into that cycle of addiction to loss is because they never actually come out to someone and say, this is the problem I have. We are deceived into thinking that we can solve it ourselves. But brothers and sisters, when God saves us, like we've said many times, he saves us individually, but he grows us collectively. He grows us as a body, as we confessing to one another the things that we struggle with, struggle with and ask for prayer and accountability. Again, if you are struggling with internet pornography, get good software like Covenant Eyes. Install it on your computer. It's going to keep monitoring the things you check and it sends a report to someone every week about your progress. It keeps you in check. If you are married, don't think that this thing is, isn't coming for you. I remember reading the story of someone who was married and he felt like, oh, well, I'm fine. There's no problem that I have with, with, sexual, with, with sex. And of course, several, a few years later, the person actually um, committed adultery against their spouse. This thing is coming for you and I, whether we are married or we are not married. And so if you are married cultivate a genuine devotion and, and sexual intimacy with your spouse. Don't believe the lie that you are the one who is at the center of the thing. Use the altar of sex as a good gift, as, 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 a, as a platform to share with your spouse, to give yourself over to your spouse. And another thing that we should do and that we need to do is to fill our minds constantly with the word of God. Memorize scripture. 
see, most times when we are confronted with sex, what happens is that you say, oh, I'm not going to think about it, I'm not going to think about it. But there really is nothing like that because you are using willpower. And so we have to combat the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Be like, God, I want to see you. I want to see you more in the word. I want to see you more in my heart. I want to see you more in the things around me. And when that lie comes to you, you say the word of God again over and over in your mind. Titus 2, 11. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no and to live sober and godly lives in this present age. We cannot do anything without the word of God. And then when we fail, we must remember, and even when we succeed, we must remember that we are not valuable to God because we fail sexually or we don't fail sexually. We are only valuable to God because there was one who was sexually faithful and his name is Jesus. He's the one who actually demands our worship. Sex and loss cannot give us what only God can give us. It will always overpromise, but it will always underdeliver. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. <laughs>